and welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, presented by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Nice Jewish Fangirls is a podcast where three Orthodox women from New York City discuss the things that we are obsessed with. My name is Michal Schick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Tamar Herman. Hello. And Essam Rosenberg. Hi. And today, very, very specially, and at long last, <laughs> from some behind-the-scenes things, we have with us Nava Wolf, who is an editor, a Jill of all trades, a whip cracker, and probably the most, like, unapologetic Slytherin I've ever met in my entire life. Nava Wolf! <laughs> Hi, guys! So, Nava, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do with your time? How does fangirl and Judaism combine in that? Because we know that it, it does, which is why we wanted you on the show. I mean, aside from the fact that you're awesome, of course, but you are also on topic. Hi. So um, I'm an editor at Saga Press, just Simon & Schuster's science fiction and fantasy imprint. And I've been doing this for about three years now. Before I was an editor at Saga, before we started Saga, actually, I was an editor at Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers where I edited a whole bunch of really great books, including, which is kind of tangentially related to this podcast, Starglass and Starbreak by Phoebe North, which, if you haven't read them, I found them super interesting when I read them on submission because they're about a mystery on a generation ship. But all the world-building words are Jewish. It's not a religious book, but it's sort of... It's it's doing a thing that I was always kind of fascinated about, which is so much of fantasy world-building is sort of Judeo-Christian with an emphasis on the Christian, where the stuff isn't Christian, but it's vaguely familiar if you look at general Christian culture. And this is the first book I had ever seen that did that with Jewish, with Jewish words. It's not religious, but they use tikkun olam, they use mitzvah, they use bar mitzvah, they use gelt. They use all these Jewish words and touchstones as the world-building words. And I'd never seen anything that did anything like it. So it's a book that I was pretty thrilled to publish, and you should all go read it. Um, But it's something that I find kind of fascinating in terms of combining Judaism and and fanishness. Yeah, that's awesome. I I actually, I think I name-dropped Starglass on our live stream, which we did last week. Um, yeah, you did. Yeah, we were talking about kind of um, Zmanim in space, and I wasn't sure exactly if the book dealt with that, but I, I knew that there was like a thing with Jews in space and Bashert, and like, I did not know that that was your book, though. That's awesome. Yes, thank you. It was such a fun book to work on. And the premise of, I mean, if you're curious, uh, the premise of how, the how and why is that, you know, several generations ago, Earth was en route to be destroyed by an asteroid, so they co-opted every generation ship they could find to load it out and send it into space. This particular one was owned by, gosh, something like like the Jewish Cultural Society, and the deal was that 80% of the ship's population had to be Jewish. So that's just the way the culture naturally evolved, which is super fascinating. Um, you mentioned the Starlet Wood, and I maybe I'm totally getting off topic here, um, but that which the Starlet Wood is an anthology that I co-edited with um, my friend Dominique Parisien, and it's an anthology of retold fairy tales where we challenged our authors to take traditional fairy tales and kind of look at them through a new lens and a new prism and play with them in different ways. And one of the stories that I found extremely delightful was Naomi Novik's story Spinning Silver, which is a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, which if you think about Rumpelstiltskin for about 35 seconds, you realize the sort of extremely distressing anti-Semitic undertones or overtones to that story. Um, and this sort of shakes it up. 
where the protagonist is a female Jewish moneylender. Ooh. And, yeah. And it takes it in all sorts of super, super interesting directions. And also, in a thing that really delights me, Naomi is actually expanding this story for her next novel. Oh, that's so exciting. I I love her. I haven't read the story, but oh my god, I love her. It was actually such an interesting thing for me, because in publishing especially, we have conversations about representation all the time. And how important representation is, how important it is for kids to see themselves in books, to see other people in books. And this is something that I very much believe and want to have diversity in the books I publish and representation. But I had sort of forgotten that it applied to me too. And I read Spinning Silver and I really loved it. And I love it for lots of reasons, not just because of this. I think it's a brilliant story for lots of different ways. But I was so excited. Like there was a part of me that was so excited to read a Jewish fairy tale that it surprised me how poignant it was for me to see myself in a story like this you know as as an adult right now where I feel like I've accomplished not all the things I want to do but you know it's not that I needed to be able to look at some picture of myself and be like oh she can do that and I can I as a Jewish person can do that too you know I, I have achieved those things I have you know I found a career path that I feel great about and I still found representation to be tremendously wonderful and satisfying and validating in a way that I kind of hadn't expected, which is pretty cool. That is super cool. Obviously, this is nice Jewish fangirls. So, and I know that you are a tremendous fangirl in in your in your very special way. So, how did you become interested in geek properties and in fandom and that kind of thing? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question, and I'm not even sure there's a good answer. I kind of can't remember a point in my life when I wasn't an enormous nerd. I vividly remember. This is like one of those Jewish things where like. My father was a nerd. My grandmother was a nerd. (laughs) Like, I come from, like, a long, distinguished line of enormous geeks who love genre and love books and love science fiction and fantasy and love watching it and reading it and discussing it. So it felt kind of inevitable that I should end up here. I always grew up reading. I remember in elementary school learning Klingon, basic and conversational (laughs) from an all-you cassette with a friend. With a friend, okay, with a friend. Uh, it was not just me. Um, I've always, always, always been a genre nerd. What would you consider, like, yeah, no, definitely. And what would you consider your primary fandoms? Oh, wow. Hold on. I have to think about that. I'm an enormous Star Trek nerd, but I'm a very specific Star Trek nerd. I love The Next Generation. I really love Deep Space Nine, and I have a deep deeply wonderful place in my heart for Voyager. I really, 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 really hate the new movies. I hate them so much, you guys. This is like the hipsteriest I ever am in my life. I liked Star Trek before it was cool, and then it got cool and it ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it ruined it. I mean, I enjoyed the movies, but I knew nothing about Star Trek. I like none of them. They are bad. They are bad movies. The the, The second one was just appallingly terrible. The first one was appallingly terrible. I have a whole essay I in me I will never one. write I about the first one. I hated the first one. I hated it so much. I have a whole essay in me that I will never write about Riverdale, the television show, which if you have not seen, you totally should for the campy delightfulness that is Riverdale. Riverdale versus the new Star Trek movies and how both of them riff off original source materials and why I think Riverdale does it successfully and the new Star Trek movies do it poorly. 
Well, I mean, I think J.J. Abrams kind of wanted to make Star Wars before he was allowed to make Star Wars. And so Star Trek was kind of an opportunity to do that in a perverse kind of way. Well, that's not acceptable to me. No, no, I completely okay, understand okay, that that would well, not be acceptable. You went down this path. It's my own fault. I did this. <laughs> I went down this path. But I'll say it real fast. The thing about Star Trek movies is that the plots don't make any sense. And that's okay because we love the characters so much. You don't have to spend time introducing us to the characters because we know them all and we already love them because we spent a lot of episodes of television hanging out with them. But the premise of the new Star Trek movies is that we don't know these guys because they're totally different because they're parallel universe people. So they have the same names and uniforms and stuff, but they are not the same people. So we don't really know them to care about them, but we're supposed to anyway. Meanwhile, the plot of this movie makes zero sense. I'm just going to put it out there for one second. Okay. In time travel and red matter. <laughs> no, I'm just going to put it out there for one second. The motivations make no sense, okay? This planet is in trouble. Spock is racing as fast as he can to save it, but he doesn't get there fast enough. The bad guys destroy the planet while Spock is desperately racing to get there. Meanwhile, the dude whose family died on the planet, he's like, I will avenge them. So instead of going after the people who destroyed his planet, he goes after the guy who tried really hard and couldn't stop it. To destroy his well, it planet. wasn't what? that there were bad guys. There were sure. no bad guys that destroyed Whatever. the planet. The planet, the planet was destroyed and the sun went nova, so there was nobody to blame. So he went crazy and he blamed the first okay. person so that was convenient. Don't go back in time and attack the guy who was trying real hard to save you. Whatever. It doesn't make sense and the characters aren't likable and it's lacking the specific kindness that is inherent in all Star Trek properties. And therefore, it's terrible and it's awful. And I, I, I love I love the characters. I thought that the characters I thought that the characters were good in this movie. I did not think that they were good in the second movie. I thought that the <laughs> that in the second movie they completely went off the rails because they tried to do a reverse parallel to Wrath of Khan, and none of the character motivations made sense because they were following a very contrived, you know, reverse script of of things, and it was just that didn't make sense at all. Um, in terms of characters, I thought that characters they they gave them all daddy issues, which is J.J. Abrams' classic thing, you know. But like, it it works enough, and I enjoyed the actors, and I enjoyed the characters, and the dialogue, and the direction. So it really worked for me, the first one. But now that I've told you the things that I hate about the Star Trek movies, I will tell you the things that I super love about actual Star Trek, which Deep Space <laughs> is the Star Trek of my heart and soul. Kira Norris is. One of my favorite. Kira Norris is the best. Ever. She's I know. the best ever. Oh, I love her. She's so been much. the captain. You know, maybe and maybe not. I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I find a really interesting dynamic between her and Cisco, and I almost feel like locking her into a captain situation wouldn't have let her expand and grow and explore the way she needed to. It's anyway, possible. kind of dropped the ball on her Kira later season. Is tremendous, and I love Star Trek a lot, and I've always loved Star Trek. Anyway. I also... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's totally fine. I'm glad that, that SM got to engage on in a Star Trek discussion with someone because Lord knows I can't provide it. Um, I don't know about you, Tamar. Are you a Star Trek person? A Trekkie? As, as I, 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 like, I like grew up watching Voyager, but I haven't watched it in some time. My little sister watches it like addictively and when we log into Netflix, Netflix, it's like she's gone through like a year's worth in like oh, a day and I don't really understand how. So I, I I do know what she's up to, but I don't I haven't watched it in a while. I, I I saw the first movie and it was like cute for all the references to the original series, but it wasn't 
it wasn't great and i didn't i don't think i saw the second i definitely didn't see the third i i don't remember if i watched the second i may have was the second the one with leonard nimoy no that was the first i think okay whatever it, it didn't make any sense anyway whichever one it was That's true that is true so and also i i'm really happy you mentioned riverdale because I haven't watched it yet because I'm a really big Archie comic nerd and I'm really mad by several of the changes that they made. I like want to watch it, but Twitter also tells me that the only good point is Jughead and Betty. And that's always no. been true. That's always been true. Well, that's what Twitter I, tells me. Well, Twitter so, is sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Here in a nutshell is why I find Riverdale to be so delightful. Archie comics in general, they have very little few touch points for like what counts as canon. Like they basically change out things, change things up to you know the the whim of the storyline that they're telling at the moment. Yeah, every so five there are all pages. These, yeah, exactly. So there are all these characters and all of this stuff that if you've been reading, reading Archie comics your whole life, like so many of us have, you're familiar with so many of these things. But they're not anchored very much. They're just anchored in sort of like physical appearances and a few character touchstones. And Riverdale is this Twin Peaks-esque campy melodrama that, like, if you've never read an Archie comic, you can enjoy it for what it is. If you have read an Archie comic, then it you'll has be nothing delighted. to do with it. <laughs> no, but you'll still be delighted when Dilton Doily shows up. You'll still be delighted with, like, a random Miss Grundy reference. You'll still be this delighted... Sounds- this sounds a, a lot like how you just described Star Trek. Like, I have no desire to watch the show because I, I've read more of the recent comics, which are serialized. Like, my sister still gets them. And, like, I know the plots. And I know exactly things that... It. But they are canon, and the show is not. So, like, I, I know that, like, people are super pissed that, like, in the comics, Jughead clearly, like, says he's asexual. And in the yes, show, he's is, not. That and, is a change I do. And, like, that's just, like, they took such a big leap forward with that. Like, that was the first thing that was making me, like, so they're doing the new series with the, like, actual plot lines, how they're having it in the in the comics right now, clearly with, a, like, a something else for the, like, television. But they're keeping a lot of the similarities of, like, the idea that Archie is now a world with us, like, a straight storytelling format. So, like, why couldn't you have just taken it what was from comics? Because... Because that sort of thing doesn't tell well on screen. Like, then you shouldn't have done it. I, I think that there was other content from the Archie universe that would have been much better. I'm still pushing for a actual Sabrina the Teenage Witch comic, uh, oh, like comics to TV or movie. Like, not, not, no, not like the one that like we grew up with. Like, no, they did a new series. One. They did a new series like four, no, probably like seven years ago already. And it was such a great world building experience. It kind of like fizzled out at the end. And they clearly didn't know where they were going and they got a new cartoonist and it wasn't as good, but like they had the world all set and it was great. And I miss that. But I, I like, I've seen trailers and it, it just looks like gossip girl. Like you're saying like, Oh, people will appreciate it, but I, I like don't appreciate it. I want Archie and I want Betty and I want Veronica. And like, yes, I want Dilton, but like, I want them as they, not that they are, but like, the plot doesn't look anything like Archie. Like, if you just put different words on them and give it, gave them different names, I wouldn't think they were Archie. That's true. Except for... I'd love for you like, to watch, like, why is Miss Grundy, like, 20? Oh, there's an explanation for that. It's called uh, Identity Theft. Ah, I like that better. See? I told you. There are a lot of things that I was super dubious about, and once you embrace it for, like, enormous camp, it works. There's a scene that sort of sold me on the whole thing, and maybe like I don't know the fifth or sixth episode, where it opens with a dream sequence, and in the dream sequence, everyone is dressed the way like early Archie the- comic style, Cute. and it's amazing. 
it's visually gorgeous. And I was just like, I'm delighted that you went there. You went there. You went straight there. That is great. See, I want to go there more. I would be interested in what you thought when you actually watched it. I don't know if I'm actually going to watch it. I've been dealing with a lot of camp since I just watched Power Rangers, and I, like, can't (laughs) go through that much nostalgia. (laughs) How was it? Was it amazing? Uh, So that's actually my current obsession. Are are we up to that yet? Yeah, actually, let's segue into our current obsessions. Uh, Tamar, why don't you go first? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so yeah so i just saw power rangers i am um, this is like spoiler smart is a huge power ranger fan yeah you, i think you discussed it in our like 2017 looking forward episode oh probably yeah so like yeah i'm a huge power ranger fan especially the first like mighty morphin but like i watched it really far there was a lot of continuity for several years past like the original series which most people I don't know if they don't realize or people just got old and didn't watch, but I didn't have cable. So like all I had was like PBS and Fox when they had it still. So I watched a lot of Power Rangers and I know like everything backwards and forward. And I haven't watched the series since I was younger. I did watch the one series that came like seven years later that was related, which is people don't realize that there was a later series that was also related to the first one, but I've watched that. Uh, Dino Thunder, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it was fine. But it is a kid show and like the movie didn't really deny that at all and it didn't really hide it like it was campy it was pg-13 but it was still really campy and you're just like what is going on and this is cheesy and like the uniforms are cheesy and the like the character development was actually pretty great and there was quite a lot of diversity which was fine but it was it was very like we have to be diverse because we have to be diverse and not very necessarily like natural diversity they had an autistic character who literally explains to everybody he meets that he's autistic which I, I don't, I've never met an autistic, a person on the spectrum who's been like that, but maybe if you're high functioning, which he clearly was, like, that's fine. They had a queer ranger, and it's very, if you didn't know, it, you wouldn't look for it. Like, like, if I hadn't told my friend who I went to see it with, she wouldn't have known. And it was just, like, very campy and really cute, and they have a lot of, like, references to the original series, like, when I, um... They had, like, during one of the morphing sequences, they had the original theme song playing, which made me, like, people were cheering in my theater. It was awesome. And then at the end, they had (laughs) the original pink and uh, green, white, red ranger show up. And they, like, were, like, it was funny because they were, like, taking pictures of the battle scene, like, on their smartphones, like, as if they were Instagramming it. It was very funny. (laughs) Um, Nice. It it wasn't the best movie. It wasn't, like, a good movie that I want to watch over and over again. Like, it didn't have... I guess the charm of like Marvel's action movies where the plot is good and the the acting is good enough that like you don't care about like the stupidities of what's going on. The acting was not great. Like these were all pretty young actors and I know most of them have have had acting experience before, but like I don't think on screen playing characters like this. So there were times when I was just like, they should have refilmed that line multiple times, like which was kind of annoying but at the same time it also called like recalled how cheesy the original series was so it didn't it's not a great movie but it's a great movie if you're a power rangers fan which i am like i i like walked out of there and i turned to my friend and i was like i loved it but it was horrible <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm personally uh, you know as established have absolutely no investment in power rangers whatsoever but it was a casualty of the you're not allowed to watch that um you know, time in my life. But I mean, I'm impressed that like most of the people I've heard speaking about it said that they enjoyed it. 
whether or not they thought it was like qualitatively good they they had fun watching it and i thought it was going to be i mean it you know it came out what the end of february march like that's not usually a time where like great movies come out so i mean i guess logan well they logan happened well they put but yeah they pushed it off they were going to release it earlier but the competition was too steep so they pushed it off uh i think at least once it may have been i think it may have been twice but i don't know like i think it's just one of those things that nostalgia kind of won me over but also like it had everything that made if i was like a a, a seven-year-old or a five-year-old i wouldn't like it but this is exactly the same sort of things that made me like it when i was younger um, like, not that I actually like cheesy things, and I, I probably would re- be revolted if this was any other movie. Um, but, like, the charm was there. Like, the cheese factor was there. All these silly little punchlines were there. And it, it was just really – it was like they knew exactly where to take it, how serious they could get. Because they could have – there was – I don't know if anybody saw this. Probably not because I'm the only Power Rangers fan, I think, right now who's in this, uh, like, call – a few, uh, maybe last year or two years ago, James Vanderbeek released a, like a ten-minute short. The, it was directed by the guy who made uh, Taylor Swift's "Bad Blood" music video, and James Vanderbeek played one of the Rangers uh, from actually the second season. He played Rocky. Whatever, it's a long story. And this was this really like creepy post-apocalyptic world, sort of where like the Rangers. It was the same exact story, but instead of like the Power Rangers being chosen as teenagers, they were like government like rangers essentially like they were like part like of like government rangers? policy to stuff no 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 to like like they were like marines sort of oh. like chosen to to keep aliens like from invading the planet and like this really 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 dark um like 10 minute short and everybody was just like the movie has to be that dark like for it not to be ridiculously cheesy we need something just as like crazy and revolutionary reimagining of Power Rangers so that it's not like this really dorky little kids show anymore. Saban really could have done that, but there was also a lot of controversy about that actual short because it was like James Vanderbeek was in it. It wasn't a small little indie clip. It was like a it looked like it'd be real and it had it came out just as they announced that they'd be making the movie. So it was very controversial. And I think a lot of people kind of expected it to take that darker like more adult tone and and they just didn't they kind of made it like breakfast clubby like the first few rangers meet like the three of the rangers meet in like detention and it's it feels like breakfast club in like 2016 like they're all like getting together and ganging up against the bully and it's really cute and then later on you meet the other rangers but normally i would have preferred something much darker like the 10 minute short which I don't know, maybe I'll link to somewhere because I think it's really, really great and everybody should watch it, even if you're not a Power Ranger fan. Um, But they kind of just, like, knew what Power Rangers was and knew what people had liked as a child and tried to figure out what those children would like as adults without losing, like, the heart and soul of it. Like, yes, it was cheesy, and yes, Power Rangers was originally cheesy, and that's kind of what made it good, but they made it... They made it look better. I was honestly really concerned because they um, released original designs for the Rangers uniforms and you could see that the women definitely had very accentuous accent. Their like breasts were like heavily accentuated and they were wearing, (laughs) no, no, no. They were wearing like, and they were wearing like heels, like wedge, wedge boots. And like, you're just like, why? Right. Like you could say like, Oh, okay. Like that's their body. Like they have boobs. Like we need to put that. But like, it was just like, what? I didn't really notice it during the movie. 
like because they're in action all the time but in the trail in like the posters it was annoying um but i didn't really notice it there was like some romance and whatever but they like did enough things that you're kind of just like oh this is but this is how the first season was and and they set it up sort of uh they had like a mid-trailer clip that was kind of like oh if you if you know what this show is you know exactly what's coming next and like they kind of really left it as like a little like homage to the the original series like they didn't really try to reinvent it they just tried to modernize it and it worked really well i don't i want to know like kind of like what the like teenagers think of it because that really is the target audience like pg-13 kids who probably didn't grow up with power rangers like they probably just think it's really cheesy because <laughs> those aren't people who write articles for websites so like the people who are writing the articles <laughs> reviewing this movie are like me <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> Um, but yeah, if, I don't think everybody will like it. I really think it's, it's value may be contingent on its nostalgic factor, but I'd be interested to see. wrong with that. I don't know. I feel like part of me wants, wanted it to be a go beyond the original, but at the same time, I think that it, they probably had a lot of meetings, like what should we do? And they tried to do it and like nothing worked because you're rebooting this series that is kind of cheesy also i don't know if this had anything to do with it if they did post edits and that's why they did the delay they released a trailer that looked ridiculously not like power rangers like it looks like a cross between transformers and animorphs which if you're familiar with those things are not power rangers and and like it didn't work and and everybody's response essentially who i've i followed like i don't follow like ranger blogs like there are some like i i have outgrown this fandom but i still love it because it was like my first real fandom um and i saw that a lot of critics were being like are we watching a power rangers movie or is this an animorphs movie like what's going on here and they and they definitely made it clear what it was and why it had looked like that in the trailer in the movie i don't know if they went back and cut it and edited anything so that it it wouldn't be like that um but whatever it was it it worked for what it was and it and it kind of added some more backstory to the original series while still keeping true to it and i don't know it was it was also like i really said i think the diversity honestly is is probably the most important factor of this movie right now like aside from like getting rid of the really racist power ranger colors from the original series like the yellow <laughs> ranger was asian and the black ranger was black so now like there's like this really funny like moment where they like they referenced a lot of this like the things that like the fans loved and the fans hated so like the blue ranger is black and the black ranger at one point's like hey i'm black and the blue ranger is just like what no you're not like <laughs> no um that was really cute um it's also it's like the so like I said there's like a queer character and there's an autistic character and the the black ranger he's Chinese and like you see him talking to his mother in Chinese I don't I don't know if she was I, I'm assuming Mandarin but it could have been another dialect um, which would actually probably have been even more interesting sorry I don't speak Mandarin um, but so like a lot of I read a lot of articles from Asian Americans saying like this is crazy that like Power Rangers of all series which was super racist early on is giving us am an asian american on screen speaking both an asian language and english because that's never happened before. and like coming out right around like ghost ghost in the shell ghost in the shell like, really yeah can't. i was ghost thinking that ghost that definitely contrasted uh, yeah a little bit. so honestly a little it was bit <laughs> probably it was probably the best 
attempt at diversity I've seen ever. And I'm wondering, because Power Rangers is owned by Disney, um, I don't know, is Sesame Street owned by Disney? No, right? There's a reason I I'm asking. I don't think so. Because so. the same week that Power Rangers came out with an autistic ranger, um, oh, that's a good point. an autistic Muppet. Um, so I just am wondering if there is some push in younger generation geared media from big media organizations to include more diversity, not just of like race and ethnicity, but also like actually showing these people as they are. Like I said, I didn't think that the ranger who was autistic was particularly uh, like true to the people I've met who are on the spectrum, but he definitely like within a minute, I'm just like, oh, he's on the spectrum. But yeah, interestingly enough, uh, this week's box office, um, Power Rangers came out quite a bit before Ghost in the Shell, and it's only trailing Ghost in the Shell by about $4 million um, in terms of box office. And it is rated higher on Rotten Tomatoes. So, and that's for this week, no, probably not overall. Yeah, I don't think it was its opening rate. Yeah. So, um, SM. What's your current obsession? Um, my current obsession. Um, well, I'll save one for um, recommended books. We're doing Pesach reading later. So my current book. obsession, I'm going to say, um, is this uh, book that I read. And he, uh, well, the, the, it's the first in a series. Um, hi, Nava. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah um so it's the first oh, in the series um called the series called uh Moonbase alpha um and it is taking place on the moon and it is a kid detective murder mystery on the moon and i bought this in the strand bookstore because i saw i read the back and i was like oh my god it's a kid detective murder mystery on the moon and like what could be wrong with that and yeah, and it was great. <laughs> I read it, and it, it, I read it in like one Shabbos. Um, it's like three hundred thirty-seven pages, something like that, and like I, it just goes really quickly. And the characters are fun, and like in the very beginning, it gives you kind of like Shakespeare does with you know a list of characters. So like you don't, you're not going in completely blind. At first, it lays out the uh, it's got a map of the entire moon base, so you can get yourself acquainted with that. And I love maps of you know contraptions that are I, I don't know I just I really I really liked having that map there and it was very simple to understand and it really um it really gives you a sense of like all the things that are that are there and that are relevant um and then it's got this list of characters and all the characters they have these amazing names and like just like you, you were talking about diversity. There is so much diversity, and like the names are just everything under the sun. And like at one point in the book, it mentions um, that there's there are these characters who are um, the rich, wealthy tourist family that is coming that came to the moon, um, and they are terrible, spoiled brats and awful people. And the narrator mentions at one point that like they look weird to him because they are white they are like old european stock white and he doesn't really know anybody who isn't at this point he like at this point in history um in this author's very you know nice optimistic vision um it's unusual to meet people who aren't of uh, of mixed race parents which is really cool um and like everybody in in the book seems to have like they seem to be a 
seem to like blend all different cultures and all different names. Um, you don't really see so much of the cultures because they kind of all they live on the moon in this base, which is very very limited in, in its amenities, and you know there's not much to do, and so there and there isn't much. It doesn't seem like there's much cultural observance going on in general, but it's like there are all these people and all these scientists from all these different backgrounds and it's you know it's very clearly represented in their names um and maybe in the future books they'll get into more of the culture parts of it but um yeah that was really cool there's i think we didn't really get to see her i don't think but there's a scientist named goldstein who's married to somebody um with a very uh definitely i think so you know an an asian name um you don't really see them, but they're like listed in the list of characters, and that made me happy. And there are a lot of women in the sciences. I felt like you know it was the kind of book that I almost didn't want to get to the end of it because I was enjoying like every scene because every scene adds something. I felt like I felt like the you know the character interaction was a lot of fun, mystery was a lot of fun, and just I wanted to learn more about this universe that he's on and like each chapter starts with a different page of the the moon base handbook where um you know it's got like the propaganda version that nasa fed them to tell them you know the moon is going to be awesome everything's going to be amazing you have all these amenities and whatever and then you know each chapter will you know will debunk that immediately and show you how awful life is on the moon and how boring and monotonous and how you know all the food is terrible and the toilets don't even work right and everything is terrible <laughs> um and they're not allowed to tell anything say anything negative about it on their video logs that they are mandated to to send back to earth and you know it's all it's all it's you know it's kind of dark and dystopian in that sense but um it it's not heavy um, or written in a dark way. Um, and, yeah, it, it's just a lot of fun from start to finish, I think. Um, awesome. And there are sequels. There are sequels, and I'm excited to read them. I love it when I kind of accidentally find a book. That's, like, yeah, one of my I like, favorite Yeah, I have things. a hard time, you know... Yeah, I have a hard time, like, going through a bookstore and, like, not getting overwhelmed by all the choices and just not buying anything. You know, and this was, but this was like, you know, I, once I, once I picked it up and read the back, I was like, well, done deal. <laughs> yeah. Why would I not buy this? <laughs> yeah. I actually, I accidentally found one of my favorite series because I was searching for another book in another one of my other favorite series and Amazon took me to that page and it was like, I, I don't know how that happened, but it was really serendipitous and wonderful. <laughs> Um, also, just FYI, Stu has a couple of other series also, which are also pretty great. He has a series called Spy School. Um, yeah, exactly I, I saw like listed in the in the you know about the author and in the inside cover and whatever. They are super yeah, great. So those are... a a plus writer. So I'm super glad you like them. I didn't personally have you edited anything by him? No, but uh, Simon and Schuster publishes them. So my colleagues down the hall work on his books. So he's awesome, and I love his books, and I'm just delighted that you also love his books. Yeah, I've been trying to get my little brother to read it. Um, so when I bought it, I was like, this, I'm buying it for me, but I'm also buying it for you. And he was like, mm, 
okay, but I want to buy this instead. I don't want to spend my money because we we both had like ten dollar gift cards, and he was like, I'm gonna buy I'm gonna buy my own book, and you can buy that one. You know, <laughs> like I don't want to waste my money on your book that I might not like. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm I'm working on getting him I'm working on getting him to read it. I'm I'm pretty sure he's gonna love it. How old is he? He's eleven. Oh, it's perfect. I feel like he's just the right age for it. Totally. He's a huge nerd. Total dork. He listens to these podcasts, by the way, so he's going to know that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> what up, Hi, awesome Goober. brother? Well, Nava, do you oh, have a current obsession? Oh, do I have a current obsession? What don't I have a current obsession with? <laughs> um, okay, you can guide me, wise people of the podcast. Should I talk about a book or a... Harry Potter sorting mechanism. That one. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Definitely that one. I say it so hesitantly only because, like, if you know me, you know that um, this is not my current obsession, my right now obsession. It's my always obsession. Um, if Okay, I'll jump right in. I think I've seen if you bring this up multiple times, yeah. <laughs> very likely. Uh, if, you, if you've, like, had conversations with me, you've probably heard about the Sorting Hat Chats. So, basically, it's this Tumblr put together by two awesome fangirls that I kind of like to call Myers-Briggs, but for nerds and with no tests. It's not an internet quiz. It's not anything where you f- answer a bunch of questions and then get told what house you're in. It's more kind of a way of understanding yourself and understanding the people around you using Harry Potter terminology. Which I find super fascinating. And some people read it and they're like, eh, this is nonsense. And some people read it and they're like, my mind is blown. Everything makes sense now. I, I suppose you can probably guess which category I fell into. Um, so It was Hufflepuff, right? <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> hey, don't insult us. I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying that Nava is like the least puffy person I've ever met. <laughs> I actually had a really traumatizing experience. No, not actually in a bad way, but my little sister and I are very, very similar, and I love her very much, and we're very similar people in many ways. We have the same face, we have the same brain, we think the same way, and we've always been very similar. And well, after I read through this and realized that I was a Slytherin primary, Slytherin secondary, as Slytherin as they come, I started like to feel really uncomfortable because I knew that she wasn't a Slytherin and it was like unsettling me because we had always been so similar, but I knew she wasn't a Slytherin and I couldn't put my finger on what she was and I kept trying to get her to read it and she wasn't reading it and I kept trying to get her to read it and just figure herself out because it was bothering me. And one night at like 11 o'clock at night, my phone rings and I pick up my, I seize my little sister and I pick up the phone and the first thing she says is, Hufflepuff! And I was like, oh, <laughs> Of course you're a Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff is like the sister house of Slytherin. It's the house, it's like my second favorite house. I love Hufflepuff so much. The point is, Hufflepuffs are awesome and I love them dearly. Um, but to sum up Sorting Hat Chats in a super, super short way, and if you want to read more of it, which I highly recommend, you can Google it, Sorting Hat Chats, it's a Tumblr. And they have a handy dandy post called The Basics, which walks you through an abridged version of all of it. And then you can read their expanded versions, and then they sort characters from TV shows and books and movies and Hamilton and lots of stuff. <laughs> so you can kind of get a sense of how they apply their sorting hat system to help you understand how to do it yourself. 
And I will 100% confess that while editing books and trying to get inside a character's head and understand what, like certain character motivation, I often use this system as a shorthand. Like, why is this person doing what they're doing? And why is it bothering me that they're not doing something else? Ah, I get it. It's because she's a Ravenclaw and a Ravenclaw wouldn't make these decisions. True confessions. I One book I was editing at one point I know, I'm, like, tangenting all over the place. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, uh, please, like, we stay on topic. <laughs> one of the great perils, the joys and perils of being an editor is you get to read a book before anybody else gets to read it, which is so great, but also so terrible because months go by before you can discuss it with anybody, and it's terrible. So I read a book, and I flip out about the book, and no one has read it or will read it for a very long time. So this particular book, I fit, I started reading it. And like by the last 40 pages, I was just, I'll tell you which ones. It was um, Icon, which is a sequel to Persona by Genevieve Valentine, which are amazing and you should read them. It basically is the UN meets reality TV. Ooh. And it's brilliant. Yes, you heard me. The UN meets reality TV. So Icon is a sequel. Also probably prescient. <laughs> so. Yeah, seriously. So short pitch is that our protagonist, Siana, is the face. Every country has a face who gets sent to represent them. And they're, sequ- they're basically handled by a team of professional politicians. But they are, you know, they're a pretty person who represents their country. So our protagonist, Siana, is the face of the United Amazonian Rainforest Confederation, which is this teeny tiny little country that nobody cares about. And all she get, basically gets to do is make PSAs about the rainforest and beaded dresses. And she's on her way to a secret meeting to work out a potential relationship contract with the American face. Yep. Uh, when there's an assassination attempt, someone tries to take, someone tries to kill her. Meanwhile, our other protagonist, Daniel, is an illegal paparazzo who thought that maybe there'd be a story somewhere around Sianna, so he's been following her, trying to get the shot. Breaks his rules, gets involved, saves her life, and now they're on the run together. It's awesome. It's so, so, so smart, and it's just brilliant. You should read it. But anyway, I was reading Icon, the second book, and for the last 40 pages, my comments, my editorial comments, just became, like, a series of larger exclamation points, and then character names <laughs> written in all caps in the margins. <laughs> Fortunately, the author, Genevieve, is a friend of mine, so after I finished reading it, I got on Gchat and harassed Genevieve about her book and just yelled at her about her characters a lot, and then, because I'm me, got to sorting them into Hogwarts houses. So... <laughs> This is a thing that I do, where I try to kind of understand people and things using the system. So to get all the way back to where we started, I will sum it up for you. The Sorting Hat Chats mechanism posits that everyone has a primary house and a secondary house, which isn't the house that you're more a little bit more and a little bit less. It's your primary house is your eyes. It's your viewpoint. It's how you see the world. And your secondary house is your tool set. It's your, it's your hands. It's how you engage with the world. Could be the same house, but it doesn't have to be. So for your primary... It's along a, a grid. You can't see my hand motions right now, so I'm going to stop doing them. Um, but Gryffindor and Ravenclaw are the idealist houses. They, they, they go towards... They, 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 they prioritize what's right and true. A Gryffindor is a, felt, a, is a felt idealist. So nothing is more important than what's right and true, and they know what's right and true because they feel it in their heart. They know it. They know it in their soul. Like a zealot is a Gryffindor is a great example. A Ravenclaw also, nothing is more important than what's right and true, but they come to that conclusion using systems. They build their systems. 
they work through it. It might be something that was passed down to them by their upbringing. It might be their system that they put together as they went through life and built it up. But it's a carefully created system that helps guide them towards what's right and true. Hufflepuff and Slytherin are the loyalty houses. Hufflepuffs value people. They value community. They don't value you because you're your, their friend. They value you because you're a person. Their friends don't get priority treatment over their non-friends. Human beings are deserving of kindness and respect and help. A Slytherin primary is, prioritizes individual loyalties. Nothing is more important to a Slytherin primary than their people they love, their individuals. Uh, they often have concentric circles of loyalty, like, and their very tight kernel is the people who are most important to them. And then there'll be their circle of friends who they like very much but aren't quite as tight with. Then maybe the next circle after that is their community, etc. Uh, but a Slytherin prioritizes their people. A good description of a Slytherin primary is a Slytherin primary probably wouldn't let the world burn to save the one person they love the most, but they'd come real close. So that's in terms of like what drives you, how you engage with the world, how you see the world, what you find most important. That's your primary. In terms of your secondary, it's how you do these things. So Gryffindor secondary is a charger. They, as we said, a zealot. They once they know it's right and true, they charge towards it, and you cannot get in their way. They're battering rams, basically. Um, they go once they know, they go to it immediately. Uh, Ravenclaw secondaries are planners. They organize information. They strategize. They run through facts. They have charts. They have grids. Um, they arm themselves with all the information that they have before they can do anything. They are not improvisers. They are organizers. Hufflepuff secondaries are workers. These are the people who work in the background without praise and glory to get things done. They're the people who run conventions. They're the gobbies of your shul. They're the people who do all the work without any of the glory, but everything would fall apart without them. And then you have Slytherin secondaries, who are fairly reactive. They're adaptive. They're malleable. They work at every situation as it comes to them. They're very good at spinning stories, at... They do it without thinking about it. They're just natural at telling the story that's best, that will be best appreciated by the listener when, when they need to hear it. Basically, Slytherins are adaptable, are adaptable. So those are the primaries and the secondaries. And when you read through this and you kind of have a sense of where you lie, where you fall in these spectrums, it can kind of help you understand if it's your thing. It's not everyone's. But there was definitely periods of time in office when we used these for problem solving. I would have a coworker come into my office, a total Gryffindor coworker, and she'd be like, here's the problem, and here's what I tried. What do you recommend? And I'd be like, ah, I would do this. She's like, I would never have thought of that. I'm like, I know. That's because you're such a Gryffindor, and you needed a silver <laughs> insulin. So also, I, I love that you have these memorized. <laughs> uh, I have talked about these with a lot of people. True <laughs> um, story at confusion which is a convention in detroit in january i know great time to go to detroit Oof. i had an actual panel on sorting hat chat sounds amazing yeah. it was super great with five panelists who are also huge sorting hat chats fans basically if it's a system that works for you it's super delightful and it becomes a really useful shorthand for understanding both yourself how you make decisions how you engage with the world how you're prioritizing things even unconsciously and also how the people around you are doing it. When you understand the people around you's houses, it's a shorthand for like really understanding people. So not for everyone, for sure, but definitely for me, I find it super useful and kind of fascinating. But the key and the most important thing is that sorting is a choice. I hate Pottermore. 
Pottermore is a glorified internet quiz that just because it's touched by the golden hand of J.K. Rowling does not make it anything aside from a glorified internet quiz. Okay, but it's beautiful. Sure. But only if it works properly. <laughs> I don't care. The number of times that people I know and care about and like have been missorted by Pottermore and then have an existential crisis because they thought they were a Gryffindor and they're being told they're a Hufflepuff. I just cannot. Why do you have an existential crisis? You'd be surprised how many people feel very tied to their house identity. No, I remember this. Yeah, people are really freaking out. I feel very closely tied to my house identity, but maybe because I got sorted into what I thought was an appropriate house that I didn't freak out. Hold on. What's your house? Okay, so when I have to explain, when Pottermore just came out, Years ago, I was sorted into Ravenclaw, which I think was the right house at that time. I took it a few months ago, and I was sorted into Hufflepuff, which I, I'm still very Ravenclaw leaning, but I think I'd, pref- I, my choice would be to be in Hufflepuff now. And I think my, as I grew older, I matured a little bit more into Hufflepuff. Like, as you were saying before, like the the primary Hufflepuff ch- like traits, those suited me a lot more than the Ravenclaw ones. Like I was sitting there, like. Well, of course, like, you have to be treat everybody equally. Like, you have to, like, always think of the best of people. Like, that's a Hufflepuff thing. And, like, it was just very, I was, I've tried to read the chat before, but I've never uh, actually gotten through it because I'm, I have ADD. Um, but so what I guess what I find really useful, by the way, on the Sorting Hat Chats Basics page, if you scroll down, there's mm-hmm. big colorful boxes that have grids, which is, like, sums it up in a super, super tight nutshell. No, I don't so, like grids. That's why I was kind of worried when you said the Ravenclaw secondary, and I was like, shoot, have I just gone off the deep end, and now I'm only Hufflepuff, and I'm not Ravenclaw anymore? See, I, this is I, why I, really I won't read I was, it. I, I'm too scared I thought of, I was being, Ravenclaw. of not being Ravenclaw. And now, and now I'm concerned that I'm not Ravenclaw, but I still think I am, because I, I think books are better than people, and I think I'll always think that. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, sorting is a choice. When the hat goes onto Harry's head, Harry yeah, says, no, not Slytherin. Not Slytherin. And the hat says, are you sure? Because you have Slytherin personality traits. And he says, not Slytherin. And the hat says, cool, it's your funeral. And puts him in Gryffindor. Sorting is a choice. So you I mean, I think, sorting that's, made, I think yeah. that's made very clear early on. So you read the sorting hat chats. And that that's the other thing that I think is key about... And, and like, I really like Harry Potter. I'm not... An, this is, I know, blasphemy. But I'm not an enormous Harry Potter fan specifically. Like, I enjoy it. I think they're fun books. I enjoyed the movies. I enjoyed the books. I enjoyed both of them. I appreciate the gifts. In fact, I did. Not every one of them, not every scene, but there were things I really liked about them. Um, I appreciate the tremendous gift that J.K. Rowling gave us in starting a trend where this kind of genre became popular, because obviously it's the thing that I love so much. Um, But, like, there's a tweet that was being passed around for a little bit while that I thought was, like, really apt when it comes to this, where, like, the founders of Hogwarts are talking to each other, and they're like, well, as everybody knows, there are four kinds of children. The good ones, the smart ones, the evil ones, and all the other ones. Yes, go on. Like, that's nonsense. It makes no sense. You want to tell me that zero Slytherins fought in the Battle of Hogwarts? I do not believe you. I just don't believe you. It's too black and white. It's too nonsense. Like everything else... All of the traits of all of the houses are neither good nor bad. They're value neutral. It all depends on how you apply them. You can have good... Think about like a zealot, you know? You can have good Gryffindors, good zealots, and bad zealots. You know, you can have good or bad everything. So, like, there was a point in my life when, like, 
like like when I told my dad that I was a Slytherin and he was like, oh, you just always want to be the villain. And I was like, no, I am not embracing Slytherinness because it's villainy or evil. This is not me like embracing my villain identity, though I do like being scary. I will admit that. But this is not that. This is just like the traits of Slytherin are the ones that I feel, you know, most describe me and I most identify with. But I don't think that makes me evil. I think that just makes me a Slytherin like every other house. It makes me understand myself and my motivations better. So, like, I'm, it, it's an interesting thing, because I'm not an enormous Harry Potter fan, but I'm an enormous Sorting Hatch Hats fan. Awesome. All right. <laughs> okay, so, um, I mean, I guess just to wrap things up, um, my current obsession uh, would be uh, the Mets slash baseball, because... Um, baseball. Oh, you went today! Yeah, yeah, I went to the uh, to Sorry, opening I day. Sorry, I dropped the gun. You can, I can, you can, you can do it yourself. <laughs> That's okay. I did, in fact, go to opening day at City Field, um, and it was one of those games where um, it was super, super boring for about an hour. I mean, an hour. I don't know. It was until like the seventh inning. Um, and nobody was scoring, and it wasn't like a great pitcher's duel. It was just kind of like nobody was scoring. They were kind of both equally not hitting the ball. And yeah, so, uh, so I, but I went and, and then around the seventh inning, uh, the Mets like broke through and scored six runs and it was awesome and amazing. And, uh, that's, yeah, yeah. So baseball's on my mind right now and I'm happy because it means spring and not freezing cold and, you know, all that. Um, also, um, if you guys have heard of this new cookie dough miracle place uh, in the city called yes. Dough, yeah. So they have a stand at City Field, and I don't know if it's kosher, <laughs> um, but I'm certainly going to find out one of these days. And tell us, uh, yeah. I'm I'm really yeah. I'm excited. Cool. So yeah, that's that's my obsession. So. Nava, um, there's also some really recent, super exciting, amazing news in your professional slash fan-ish life, which is that you have been nominated for a Hugo Award for editing. Which which work was it again? It's Best Editor Long Form. Best Editor Long Form. Which is an award that you're eligible for if you've edited four or more uh, novel-length works of science fiction or fantasy in the previous year. So... Yes, I have been nominated for that, which is kind of amazing. I am thrilled and delighted to be a Hugo finalist. And yeah, so I'm not super how does it feel? about it. How does it feel? How does it feel? It feels amazing. I'm just honored to be nominated. I am like delighted and overwhelmed by it. And I'm also really, really delighted to be nominated with so many awesome ladies who I respect and admire and love who work in this industry with me. So these are people I couldn't be more happy to be sharing a ballot with, basically, which makes it even better. That is awesome. And just for those of our listeners who may not know, the Hugo Awards are basically like the biggest fantasy sci-fi writing awards. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a lot, but still. Writing yeah, and, people- and stuff like that. They, yeah, they have a whole bunch of categories, but yeah, they're really big in the sci-fi. They're like the sci-fi Oscars. They are basically the sci-fi Oscars. <laughs> that is an excellent way to describe it. Uh, and George R. R. Martin writes about the Hugos all the time 
on his blog. George R. R. Martin <laughs> actually throws a losers party. Oh, where he does. Hugo you're right. He does, and the Hugo losers are invited to George's losers party. So fingers crossed. Oh gosh, I don't know which one to root for now. <laughs> Well, the winners are allowed to come too, but they have to like dress funny or something. I don't really know the whole deal. <laughs> but, um, yes, no, I will be at George R. R. Martin's Losers Party this year if all goes well, which is kind of amazing. That is fantastic. Um, okay, so moving on to some, I guess, more mundane subjects. Uh, Tamar, you had some questions? Uh, yeah, Nava. So I guess my first question is, is how did you exactly get into publishing? Because that's not something that typically a lot of like from Orthodox Jewish girls not not try to get into, but like actually break into and get into it. It's particularly about like fantasy and sci-fi. So I would probably us, like, say many try and few succeed. Well, that's just I mean, that's just publishing. In yeah, general. yeah, exactly. Publishing is one of those crazy industries that's highly competitive and pays terribly and you work really hard. So from the outside, it's sort of difficult to understand why anybody would want to do this job, except for the thing that I love it tremendously and would never want to do anything else. Um, but my first publishing in this, it, in, sorry, my first publishing internship was at Norton, the Norton Anthology of English Literature, Norton people. Uh, it was in college science textbooks. And that's when I realized that I really like publishing and I really did not like college science textbooks. <laughs> uh, and my second internship was at Aladdin, which is a children's imprint at Simon & Schuster, which was actually super interesting because I went in for my interview, my internship interview, and they said, what category do you want to work with? What kind of books do you like? And I opened my mouth to say science fiction and what came out was children's books. Still not sure why. Um, but I ended up doing an internship at Aladdin and I loved it. I loved publishing. I loved children's books. I absolutely loved working there. I loved Simon & Schuster. So then I got married and moved to Israel for the year. That was not great. I mean, Israel was great. Don't get me wrong. But it was non-ideal to take a full year break between an internship and looking for a job. I would have dreams where I would be hired at Simon & Schuster and have a real-time job. And then I'd wake up and I'd be like, thanks, Brian. You know, I got this. I know that I'm anxious about trying to find a job when I get home and there's nothing I can do about it. You don't have to keep reminding me. Like, you can stop anytime now. That'd be cool. Um, I have that same conversation with myself all the time. I know, it's terrible. Thank you so much, Brain. You suck. Um, I came home, we came home from Israel and I spent several months in my pajamas watching Gilmore Girls and applying for jobs. Watched a lot of Gilmore Girls and ended up working at Books of Wonder which is a children's bookstore on 18th Street, uh, which was wonderful. It was great to be doing things and working with awesome people. And I ended up getting hired out of Books of Wonder as an editorial assistant at Simon Schuster Books Reading Readers. Funny story about that. I was living in, in Riverdale in the Bronx at the time, and Books of Wonder was all the way downtown on 18th Street. And I was sort of questioning the wisdom of taking such a long subway ride for a job that paid an hourly minimum wage, basically. And my second day in the bookstore, I was, which was my first day on the register, uh, I was sitting there, ring, you know, ringing books up, and these three men in suits come in, and they pile the big stacks of books, and they bring them up to the register, and while I'm bringing them up, these gentlemen decide to tell me who they are, and they say, hello, I am, and they gave me their names, and they said, and we are the president and the vice president and the deputy publisher of Simon & Schuster Children's Book Publishing. Oh my god. And I was like, stop it. 
So I basically threw myself at them coolly and professionally and was like, I interned at your company. I want to work there and I want to work in publishing and I love children's books and these books are my favorite, etc. And one of them gave me his card. He was the president of the children's group at the time. Oh my God. And yes. So basically I felt a lot better about my decision to work all the way downtown while living in the Bronx uh, after that. Um, I actually went in for an interview for a job that I didn't get hired to out of that encounter. Um, but one of my fellow interns from back in my Aladdin days who had gotten hired out of her internship passed on my resume when my the position I got hired for opened. She handed my resume to my publisher who called me in for an interview and I was hired as an editorial assistant at Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers, which was fantastic. Um, I was there for six years. I worked as an assistant for David Gale, who's the editorial director and who is a brilliant, brilliant editor and learned everything from him. And then three years ago, four years ago? Yeah, four years ago at this point, three and a half years ago, uh, Simon & Schuster, John Anderson, who's the president, of, current president of, of Simon & Schuster Children's Books, realized that Simon & Schuster has not had a science fiction imprint for a really long time. And he decided that even though we were the children's group, we were going to create one, an adult science fiction and fantasy imprint under the umbrella of the children's group. Um, so he went forth and did that, and I was the person in-house who was always the enormous genre fan. There was actually a moment in my review the year before when I had written on my self-evaluation that I was going to carve out a niche for myself as a science fiction fantasy person at Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers. And my boss said to me, well, that's a good idea, but you don't want to back yourself into a corner. You don't want to just get you know pigeonholed with doing the same kinds of books over and over again. And I thought to myself, I definitely know better than my boss who's been doing this for years and has won every award in the book. Yes, I, I'm smarter than him, obviously. So I'll keep pigeonholing myself. And about a year later, I had hit the point where I was like, mm, I think he was probably right about this one. I wish I had some contemporary, you know, YA on my list. I need to start diversifying. And right about then, my boss called me into his, uh, not David, but our publisher called me into his office and said, we're starting a science fiction fantasy imprint. Do you want in? So I was like, all right, I guess, I'm, I guess I'm okay on that end. I guess back myself into a corner was just fine. And that's how we started Saga, and that's how I got here. Fantastic. That is, that is awesome. I have been extremely lucky, and I am very grateful that I have had the opportunities to do these delightful things. Like meet all the cool people at the party. Like <laughs> the conversations yeah. I have with Nava... Uh, I'll be like, oh, I love this author. She'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. I met their kids and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, okay. There's a moment when you start going to science fiction fantasy conventions, especially when you're a professional and you're going to them professionally, and you start meeting writers whose works you fell in love with, who were incredibly formative to you, whose books devastated you, and you start hanging out with these people. And, like, there's a voice in your head that's like, be cool, be cool, it's cool, be cool. And, like, inside you're fangirling tremendously. And on the outside you're like, I'm a professional. It's, it's this delightful dichotomy where, like, you need a small group of people for whom you can be like, this happened. I need to tell you that this thing happened because it happened. But I'm a professional. It's fine. I'm not freaking out about this at all. But you're freaking out about this. I mean, it's good to know that the, pro the pros are total goobers, too. 
at heart. That's, oh, that's good. Totally. And everyone has their person. That's the thing. Like, there are people who, you know, everyone is like, eh, it's just a person. And then there are, like, everyone has the writer who, like, overwhelmed you. Like, there are writers who I can't talk to. There are writers who I'm ashamed to say I try and I fail because all the, all the words that come out of my mouth is, I love everything that you've done. It's humiliating. I can't talk to them. But, you know, you do your best. Um, SM, why don't you take the next one? Um, well, we kind of addressed the, the cool people question. I was going to ask, who are the coolest people that you've come in contact with because of your job, besides us, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely you. Mm. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think who I can, I don't know. I hang out... I think, like, the most wonderful thing about the people that I hang out with is not even the very famous writers, though there are some delightful, very famous writers who I get to hang out with, but it's not even the very famous writers. It's more the incredible up-and-coming talent who I've gotten to know and gotten to hang out with, people who are brilliant writers but also brilliant people. And I, I, I get to hang out with these awesome people and get to have them as my friends and as my cohort. And that's kind of an amazing thing. And most of them aren't even like enormous names at the moment. They may be one day, but I just feel delighted and lucky that I get to have them as my friends. Sorry, oh, so you that's a more once, didn't you? I did. That was actually a Books <laughs> of Wonder. Oh, oh when cool. Her yes, I, yes, uh, Books of Wonder. Here's the thing about celebrities running into them in real life, if you haven't yet had this delightful experience, they look vaguely familiar. So most of the time, if you're me, you're just like, how do I know this person? Have <laughs> <laughs> like, I seen you I in school? I don't know. When, when I ran into Kevin Bacon on the street, I was like, that's Kevin Bacon. <laughs> like, there's no one else well, it could be. Like, I sold books once to Billy Crystal, and I spent the entire time I was selling books to him being like, how do I know you? So my husband's family is enormous. His mother is one of ten, and they all have five or more children, and there are several step, step and second marriages in there, so we're related to the world. So I was hanging out with this like old Jewish-looking guy, and I was like, how do I know you? Are you maybe a relative? You go to my shul? Like, are you a friend of my parents? Like, how do I... I know I know you. You're so familiar. How do I know you? I didn't say that, fortunately, but I was like, how do I know you? The whole time. And... Then I finished selling the books to him and it was all over. It was fine. And then maybe five or ten minutes later, my manager pulled me aside and goes, don't look now, but Billy Crystal's in the cafe. And I was like, that's who it is. I just spent ten minutes <laughs> selling the books. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I saw him at so-and-so's bat mitzvah. Like, for sure. Yeah, basically. pretty valid also to say. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever had to edit something that conflicted with your fundamental values, like it was racist or it was sexist, and what did you do? Like, did you talk it over with the author? Did you, you know, did you, like, ask to get off the project or something like that? I've never had, I mean, the nice thing about being an editor is that for the most part, we can sort of head those things off at the pass, or at least hopefully we can. Mm -hmm. um, I've had arguments or conversations with authors about things I felt strongly that they should change, that's for sure. Um, mm -hmm. I'm lucky that I have a fairly decent network of people who I trust. I mean, not even sensitivity readers so much as, like, trusted friends who I can, like, run something by with. 
let's run something by so I can try, say, you know, how, is this a thing you'd be okay including or not? And then when I get pushed back from the author, I say, no, I checked with the source. You know, I checked with someone, you know, for whom this is a real thing. So, for I, I, fortunately, I've never really had to deal with that. No, I'm, I'm running uh, through my, like, the projects I've had problems with in the past to see if any of them were, like, value-based or just really irritating author-based. Because <laughs> those happen. Okay, so next question. How is it being... An Orthodox Jew in the publishing industry. I know I always like feel like I'm looking at like your social media and you're like, oh, she's away again doing something. And I feel like that in itself is kind of difficult because it seems to be like a lot of over Shabbos work, but also like just in general. Tell us how your life is. So, I mean, nothing is without challenges. Um, I definitely think that it's gotten easier over time. I mean, easier and harder because before I was in started Saga, I didn't go. I didn't really travel for work at all, so I didn't have the Shabbos issue. There was just the Shabbos issue of often cool things happen on Shabbos and I cannot go. Uh, but I didn't like go to a con over a weekend. Um, I used to feel a lot more self conscious about kashrut and Shabbos, about like not being able to attend, you know, a work event or not being able to eat the food. And this is actually kind of something that. Like a confidence that grew when I had conversations with my other religious coworkers of other denominations, my Catholic coworkers and my Muslim coworkers, where some of them just seem a lot more comfortable in their religious skin than like I and my other religious co- Jewish coworkers wor- seem to be. And I was like, well, if they can do it, then why can't I do it? No one seems to care about them being like, hey, here are my boundaries. So I started doing that too. And like, guess what? Nobody cared and people are respectful. Like, especially publishing can be such a liberal like industry. There is such an emphasis on like respect and, you know, you do you and that's cool. So I do me and that's cool. Uh, I just say, I can't eat that. I need food from here. And people either accommodate or just don't make a big deal out of it, which is really nice. Um, In terms of conferences, that's obviously a little bit trickier. Um, it was a lot more difficult when I didn't know anybody. I'll say that for sure. Um, but I have, um, one, one, of, one of the ways that I find conferences are very helpful is I have very close friends who are not Jewish, who I room with, and they Shabbos Goy for me. And when you room with someone enough times, they start to kind of get a sense of what you need done, when you need the door to be open for you, and when you need the lights turned on and off. So... Uh, it becomes a lot smoother. I don't, you know, a lot of a con is hangout time. It's spending time and enjoying the company of your friends. So I don't schedule meetings on Shabbat. I try not to be on panels on Shabbat. Um, I try not to do, I mean, malacha aside, I try not to do what constitutes work in my eyes on Shabbat. Uh, and that's, so it's not the most Shabbos-like Shabbos I've ever had, obviously. But you know, I know enough people. I know enough people, and enough people know me in the con scene that I can get by and you know, have things taken care of. I also have developed my con survival skills, where I bring my own food and I have a portable warming drawer, which is basically like a zip-up kata. It's amazing. I need to Google that. I will send you the link. It's like forty bucks on Amazon, and it's like thin and lightweight, Ooh. and and you basically. I bring like, you know, small, um, t- like tinfoil containers, put my food in. It does, it's not immediate. So like you have to like put your food in it and come back in an hour. Mm-hmm. 
But usually I'll put food in in the morning when I leave the room and then it's heated and ready to go for lunchtime. Same thing for dinner. So it's aside from like, you know, cereal or granola bars or cookies or whatever nonsense you eat at a convention or graze on at the con suite, there's, it's really, really nice to have protein and hot food. And I usually take some combination of like baked beans and a barley dish and vegetarian chicken nuggets, which reheat really well and are incredibly delicious if you get them from Trader Joe's. Um, and I actually recommend this for even non-kosher consumers because it's cheap. And it's delicious. And sometimes you don't have time to run out for a meal and you just want to have something hot and tasty and filling that's not garbage when you're somewhere for four days. <laughs> uh, so I've worked out my system. I, it's not like the most perfect Shabbos experience of all time, but it certainly does the job. Awesome. Cool. Okay, so um, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, I just oh, wait. want... Well, oh, one last question. Okay. One last, one last question. I think I, I skipped it. I wanted to ask it. I mean, so I guess we'll, now that you told us your, you know, you've got your routine down for con, what is your daily routine at work? Just a general overview. Like, what do you do on a daily basis? Oh my gosh. That's such a good and also a complex question. Um, <laughs> Feel free to condense as much as you want. So the short answer is there isn't really a standard day. I mean, I get to work, I open my email, I check my email, I see if there's anything super urgent that needs me to respond to it immediately. Um, and then it's basically like attacking the to-do list. Uh, sidebar plug for my favorite app of to-do list app, which is called Habitica. It's basically gamifying your to-do lists and your product. It's basically like gaming, gaming productivity. And I find it very delightful, but also super useful to be able to like stick everything I have to do in one place that I can carry around with me. Uh, so I opened up Habitica, Habitica, like habit, habit, mm. uh, it's free, it's online. Um, so there's any one of a million things. Um, there's cover copy to write, there's contracts to route, there's cover proofs to review, um, there's uh, copy edits to check through sometimes I have to like sales figures for an author I have to go to meetings I have to go to covers meetings I have to go to production meetings where we check in on every title I have to walk around to my various designers and talk to them about covers I have to go to covers meetings where we all look at different covers to a staff meeting where we talk about whatever's on the mark on the table at the moment sometimes rarely I get to edit editing is very hard at my desk when there's a million distractions so sometimes I'll like run away and hide in a cafe or something for a few hours and just do some straight editing. Primarily I do editing on the train or at home, but every now and then when editing is my number one priority, I'll steal some hours and go somewhere and get some editing done. But the short answer is that there's no standard day. There's sort of like a cornucopia of a zillion things that need doing. And every day it's just a question of which one is the most urgent and you know, what, what do people need? What do I need to get out the door right now to keep, you know, the most pressing things moving and the most balls in the air, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. The, you know, publishing internships that I had and things like that, they were just all over the place. You know, whatever happens to need doing that day, you do it. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's funny because 
I think the biggest misnomer and biggest like myth about being an editor is that it's a great job for an introvert. You know, that's what whenever I tell anyone I'm an editor, that's what people say. They're like, "Oh, do you get to sit and read all day?" And I'm like, "Ha ha 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 ha." Well, that's only a small part of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the truth is that like it's a terrible job for an introvert because a tremendous part of our job is selling both ourselves and our lists. You know, you have to go out and you have to meet agents because you want them to send you the good, the good stuff, the, the good submissions and the great books. And the only way they're going to be able to send you stuff that's right for you is if they know you, if they know what you like and they have a sense of your taste and a sense of what you're excited about. You know, if you aren't enthusiastic about it, no one is going to be enthusiastic about it. So you're constantly selling your books to everyone there. Then you go on social media and you're selling your books to people outside. So publishing is all about being, you're the project manager and you're in charge of literally everything in the book's life, you know, from acquisition to editing, to copy editing, to marketing, to publicity, to design, every single part of it is your job to liaise with and to reach out with and to make sure that all those balls are kept up in the air. While everyone is doing their job, it's your job to make sure that they're on top of their jobs for all of your books. So you're constantly doing 8 billion things for lots of different titles at a time. Mm-hmm. So it's a relaxing occupation. Really relaxing. Pretty chill. Oh yeah. <laughs> Professional babysitting. all right so before we wrap up just a very very quick lightning round um i want everyone to say what they are planning on reading over pesach slash a recommendation because we are not going to be having another episode before pesach at least before pesach starts so uh so this is our chance to let everyone know um I am reading, uh, well, I will probably read Thick as Thieves by Megan Whelan-Turner again, um, because I have an arc of it, and it is precious and dear, and I need to take every tiny detail, a part of that book, and hang it up and examine it very carefully. Um, But um, I'm also probably going to read Empire's End by Chuck Wendig, which is the final installment in in his um, uh, Star Wars, like, right after Return of the Jedi um, book seri- book trilogy. And um, I've heard that it is better than the previous one, which was better than the first one. And I kind of want to know how it ends. And they sent me a coffee. So I'm probably going to read that. And you know what? Like, Redemption, right? Like, Redemption. It, it fits. Yes. Redemption from the Empire. It fits with the theme of the holiday. <laughs> um, Tamar, what are you going to be reading over Pesach? Oh, no, I really don't want to participate because I don't know what I'm reading yet. I, Nava actually gave me some books oh. um, because we both, but we participated in a in a gift exchange. But and Nava had me, so she gave me a few books. So I'm going to be reading those, and I I didn't put, pull up all their names. But right in front of me, I have The Mountain of Cat Memory by Rachel Numier, and uh, I don't I don't know if I pronounced her last name properly. And I'll be rereading that, and I'll probably throw in like. I'm not going to lie, I'm probably just going to end up reading like 20 of my romance novels and and like not read what I'm supposed to read <laughs> because I tend to do that a lot. I, I have, I've, I've read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy stuff recently and I just need like some good fluff in my life. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but my brain's like falling out lately and I just like want like easy, like finished in like 300 pages. I don't have to like worry about the plot driving me crazy books right now. Absolutely. Sorry, that's not really helpful. No, there is no shame in fluff. And also, you know, there's some shame involved. It's a long holiday and it's good to have a book you can just sink into and then leave behind. I, I appreciate that kind of read a lot. 
SM. Well, I, mean, I, I won't leave them behind. I'll finish them in like an hour or so. I, I read like one a day. Right. It, that makes me sound kind of crazy <laughs> and addicted. But yeah, I read one last night. Like I was supposed to go to bed and then I did not. And I read it until three. And I was done. Uh, SM, how about you? What are you reading? Um, well, over Pesach, I'm going to try and take a stab at um, Name of the Wind, which was given to me by my oh. friend Bracha. Oh. Yeah, which I've never read before. <laughs> That's um, a controversial choice. I like it. Yeah, but my so my recommendation, um, which I have read, so I know it's good, so I can recommend it. Um, it was Agent to the Stars by John Scalzi, and I it's it's one of those books that you know really quick and easy, um, fast paced dialogue, and just like every scene just you know adds to the story, and just it just builds really quick. I, I read it in one day, um, and it is about um, a aliens come to Earth for the first time, and they smell terrible, and so they are they get an agent um, who is, who is uh, the narrator of the book, and he's trying to come up with a way to introduce them to humanity and present them and sell them in a way that um, humanity won't be terrified. Oh my God. Um, and it's 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 awesome. It's it's a hilarious premise, and it um, it is 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 a lot of fun and um, surprisingly poignant, um, and it actually makes good use of um, the Holocaust, if you believe it or not. Um, I don't want to give too many details because we don't have any time anyway. But um, yeah, it's it's good. It's it's fun, but it's it's got some heart. So yeah. Nava, do you know John Scalzi? I actually do know John Scalzi. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> um, funny story about John that's also about what I'm planning to read over Pesach. Um, see, segue ties into both. Uh, John has a new book out called The Collapsing Empire, um, which I have not yet How read. How new is that? It came out like. I'm looking at Amazon right now, March 21st. So it's super, super new. Um, And I am actually super excited to read The Collapsing Empire for a reason that has nothing to do with anything about the book. But there's a character in the book who's kind of named after me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so apparently, so John said that he didn't want to use my actual name because it felt too on the nose. But there's a character named Nafa, N-A-F-F-A, who's totally me. FYI. That's amazing. If you read that book, which I have not yet read, but hope to read over Pesach, that is totally me. So why did he name a character after you? Did you win a contest? What is this? No, we were emailing about some stuff, and I don't actually know why he chose to do this thing, but he was like, I was looking for a character name, and I had your email open, so I decided to name a character after you. (laughs) So, that's the answer. I have no more information. I have not yet read the book, so I don't know if it's a compliment or an insult. So, and Kate Elliott told me she's going to kill me in one of her books, possibly two of her books. <laughs> Wait, just so does that mean the same character dies twice, or she's naming two different characters after you? I named two different characters after me. Oh my gosh, you guys! Can I tell you an incredible revelation that I had that has nothing to do with anything except for the fact that after I said this at a convention, that's when Kate Elliott told me she'd kill me in a book. Uh, please. Okay. Okay. This might just be present, but. Okay, Hogwarts houses of Star Trek captains. Kirk, what is he? A white guy. I know, but what's his Hogwarts house? <laughs> Kirk is a Gryffindor. Totally Gryffindor. a Gryffindor. Yeah, okay, he's a Gryffindor. Next, Captain Picard, what's his Hogwarts house? 
Ravenclaw? Picard is a Ravenclaw. Totally Ravenclaw. Cisco, what's his Hogwarts house? See Gryffindor for him also. I would say Slytherin for him. I would say Slytherin Maybe. for him. I could I could see Slytherin if you go by like Slytherin's individual loyalties. And let's keep going. Captain Catherine Janeway, what's her Hogwarts house? I'm guessing you're gonna say she's a Hufflepuff. She's a total Hufflepuff. I can see her being a Hufflepuff with the whole, you know, we got to make it work. You know, everybody's important. Everybody everybody's matters. Yeah, right? Mind blown. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Technique. No, it's Can't fine. It all it. loops back around. We're back on Star Trek. All loops back around. <laughs> anyway. All right. Awesome. Um, Nava, tell us where people can find you on the internet place. On the internet place, you can find me on Twitter as NavaW. That's the primary place. Aside from that, you can see the bookstore publishing on sagapress.com. Awesome. And Saga Press now has an Instagram. Find us at SagaSFF. And Saga's Twitter, also SagaSFF. Oh my god, I don't know if I follow Saga. And I definitely do don't. Right now. Um, what do I do? Yes! <laughs> Let's see, do I? Saga. I'll have my Harry Potter Haggadah account follow the uh, the Saga Instagram account. Nice. That'll be fun. They can be buddies. Oh, here we go. I am really I was excited. not following it. Oh, shame. Um, SM, where can people find you online? Um, primarily on Facebook, um, but also on Twitter at Floating Spirals. And um, on Amazon, I have an author page. Some of my works were recently taken down because there was an issue with uh, the publisher was having with the distributor, but they assured me that they will be up soon. So, um, yeah, so right now there are only three publications there, but there used to be more. Very, well, that's a bummer, but onward and upward, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Tamar, where can people find you online? You can you can find me on social media at Tamar Writes, and um, the majority of my writing is at Billboard.com. And you can find me online at Ink as Rain. You can find me there on Twitter and also on Instagram, which is mostly my nails and my cat. So it's really not that interesting. Um, and you can find... I like your nails. I think it's interesting. Oh, thank I you. I like your nails and your cat. Aw, thank you. I'm not going to compliment a cat. <laughs> well, that, that's sad for you. Although Nava I has an like editor cat. cat. Because Thanks. Nava's cat looks like Toothless from How oh. to Train Your Dragon. You can find us nice Jewish fangirls on Twitter at Jewish Fangirls. You can send us an email at NiceJewishFangirls at gmail.com. You can like our Facebook page, which is Nice Jewish Fangirls. You, uh, and while you're there, if you haven't already, check out our awesome and amazing live stream during which we display not only just incredible erudition and, and don't definitely don't put stickers on each other's faces, but um, also our amazing chemistry as hosts, if I may say so myself. So, um, you can also... <laughs> I'm just really proud of that live stream, guys. Um, and hey, people watched it. People did watch we it. We were, it's got like we 400 totally views now, which I don't even know how that's possible, but that's like, oh my gosh, that is amazing. I think most of those are probably people scrolling through their feed and getting it on. No, they way. don't. They don't count that. Are you sure? Yes, you have to. You have to actually click on it for it to count. And as always, we really, really, really appreciate it uh, if you would leave us an iTunes review if you haven't yet. It really does help iTunes recognize our podcast and be like, oh, hey, you're a thing. We'll 
have you show up higher in, in searches and stuff. Uh, yeah, so that is, that is definitely a goal. So we can continue uniting people who like nice things, Jewish things, and fangirl things all together in one wonderful package. And of course, as always, you can visit jewishcoffeehouse.com, which you should do if you are hankering for any Jewish uh, related podcasts, especially around Pesach, or you're like, what is this? What is this thing? Why are all the Jews that I know freaking out right now? Go to jewishcoffeehouse.com. They'll tell you why. All right. So for the nice Jewish fangirls, we will speak to you soon. Live long and prosper, everyone.